So a while ago, test, test. Let's see if this is an issue on my end. Oh, there we go. We're good to go. So a while ago, Roger and I, we had a little bit of a bet. And I, I, it's not a, not a big bet. There wasn't a whole lot on the line, but we had a little wager. And it had to do about whether or not you could taste the difference between tap water and purified water. You see, every time I talk about my love for water, I, I love purified water, and I blame my father. My, my, my father is a, is a water snob who, who always has to have like reverse, reverse osmosis in his house. And so I love purified water. And whenever I talk about it, Roger always brings up, he grew up in West Virginia, and they, <laughs> and they drank out of water hoses. <laughs> and he said he did not think that I could tell the difference between uh, purified water and tap water. And I went, I went in one further. I said, you know what? I can tell the difference between purified water, spring water, and tap water. And so we had a little bit of a wager. This is a while back. And if you, ever, if you have any questions about the validity of the story, ask April. She was there. She was our, me she was our mediator. And trust me, we do work when we're in the office. <laughs> it's just occasionally we like to have fun. And so unfortunately, I don't have a bottle of, of, of spring water, but I have purified water and I have some tap water. And, and part of the, the arrangement was I was to sit blindfolded at a table and Roger was to pour me a cup of all three. So in, in usual, usual Roger style, he does not adhere to the rules. He proceeds to pour me one glass of purified water and two glasses of what I believe is tap water. And I'm sitting at the table, I'm blindfolded, I'm ready to go. April's like in her, in her referee shirt mediating and, uh, and it comes time to take the first sip. And I take the sip and I'm like, put it down. I'm like, in my mind, I'm like that 100% is tap water. And I take the next cup and I take a sip. And I was like, that, that's, that's also tap water. And then I take the next cup and I taste it and I'm like, and that's purified water. I'm like, Roger, did you put through? <laughs> did you try to just uh, spin the experiment? And yes, he admitted it. And, uh, and it turned out I was right. I was able to distinguish the three different cups correctly. And therefore I had won the most glorious prize of all. He paid for Starbucks the next time we went. All that to say is that, is that purity is important. For me, when it comes to water, it's important. But when it comes to God, it's also incredibly important. We've been going through our, our series, our broken bless, blessings. Um, and, and part of the series is that we've been, we've been looking at this idea of, of something that, that, that appears broken, something that appears like incomplete, but however, it's beautiful. And so we're, we're using this example of this, this art style called kintsugi, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. And it's the idea that, that, that something broken can be, can be made even more beautiful than it ever was originally because it was broken. And they used gold to piece together these bits of pottery, these bits of clay, these bits of ceramic in a way that makes them gorgeous. We have a beautiful example of it up there. 
And so today we're in Matthew 5, uh, verse 8, if you want to turn that with me really quick. We're going to be reading about our next beatitude. And unfortunately, we are almost done with this series, and I've actually loved it immensely because it's been a huge challenge to myself personally. Um, But yes, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5, verse 8. And one of the things I want to look at is, is, actually, I want to to talk about the idea of broken blessings to begin with. Because whenever we talk about broken blessings, the first first thing that comes to our minds is, is that we have blessings that are broken. And at, at, at first glance, that seems like the case. And as we've been going through the Beatitudes, it's something that Jesus is presenting. He's presenting a way of life, a way of existing. In the Sermon on the Mount, he, he, is, he is changing our view of what it means to be good, what it means to be righteous, what it means to be pure in such a way that it seems broken. But I tell you that without a shadow of a doubt, it's not. In many ways, these broken blessings aren't blessings that are broken, but they are blessings for broken people. They're blessings for us as we take steps to get closer and closer and closer to being who God wants us to be. And so today we're looking at Matthew 5, verse 8. It is blessed, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. In my writing of this sermon, I listened to to many different sermons from other pastors about what exactly we're looking at here. And I kind of want to give you some of the ideas. This this simple, simple verse, and this is what we talk about whenever whenever Roger or I or David ever talk about when we read scripture, it's almost like looking at it new every single time. There's some different aspect, a different side of it that, that, that you, can, you get to learn a little bit more about. And in this simple scripture has 11, 11 words, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. There's so many questions to be answered. What does it mean to be pure in heart? Is it talking about, is it talking about the children, the small, innocent the ones that have been un- untainted by the world? Is it talking about those who have been transformed to have a pure heart? When he talks about seeing God, is it talking about seeing God here on this earth? Is it talking about seeing God in heaven? Is it talking about just being in heaven, period? But I got to tell you, the one thing that we have to cover first and foremost before we answer any of those questions is a very, very hard lesson for all of us to learn and that we all don't start as pure in heart. I've said this before. It's actually one of my favorite things to say. It's that I don't have to convince you that we live in a broken world filled with broken people. You spend 15 minutes on the news side of Facebook. You look at politics for five minutes. Look at what's going on in schools. Truthfully, we can look at what goes on in our own relationships and see just how broken it is. And there's, there's a problem here because, because the more we talk about brokenness and we talk about how broken we are, I don't think we always get just the depth 
of how lost we start out. Because as broken people, it doesn't mean that we're just broken on the inside. It means that we're also really good at breaking things. Like everything we touch. It's the opposite of the Midas touch. Things we touch don't turn to gold like these beautiful bowls. The things that we touch break. I want to read a verse in one of my favorite verses. Romans 7, 14 through 25. And he talks about the plight of brokenness that we experience. And just how, how we can desire, like, with all of our heart to do the right things, to chase after the right things, to, to, to desire and pursue, 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 there we go, pure things. See, broken people. And somehow it's always so unattainable. Romans 7, 14 through 25. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer my, I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do good that I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, I do. And this thing I keep on doing. I can, I can, I can totally relate with the frustration there. And that kind of brings us to our next point, is that the fundamental understanding is that we're broken. The layer on top of that is that we can't fix it. No matter how much we try, we can't fix it. And that's terrifying. Does anybody else like me love control? I love it. I love being in control. It's one of those things that I recognize is a broken part of myself, is that there's a comfort with control. There's a comfort with knowing the variables and seeing how it will end and somehow having control along the way. I like driving because of that, because I'm in control. And unfortunately, there's a little bit of stress that comes with understanding on the very, very foundational level, I am not in control. I'm not in control of this. I'm not in control of this. The one thing that is 100% totally mine, myself, my heart, my mind, my soul, I can't, I can't make it do what I want it to do because I don't want to do all the good things all the time. And that's a fundamental problem with me. And that's a sentiment, unfortunately, that humanity shares, is that we are broken. but we get too caught up. We get too caught up on the stuff that's on the outside and we don't focus on the stuff that's in the inside. First Samuel 16, seven. And the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height for I've rejected him. The Lord does not look on the things people look at. People look on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. 
And the truth is, is that, is that whenever we learn that we can't have control of the inside, we do our darndest to make the outside look as good as possible. Unfortunately for me, I'm not good at doing the inside stuff or the outside stuff. I can put on a nice shirt. I can smile a lot. But it doesn't fix the inside. And one of the things we learn here immediately from this is that the blessed are the pure in heart. God cares so deeply about what's inside of our hearts. Just a little bit further in the, ser- in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus makes a powerful point. He says, if you have, you have heard that it is said, you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you, I'll tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And so, the normal human reaction is to say, you know what? I think I can fix this. What I just need is a long list of rules to get me through it. And so, I've come up with my own ridiculous list of rules that we can attempt to try to make ourselves pure. For the guys, I think it's best that if we don't look at women below the nose. The internet, we gotta get, we gotta get rid of that. Just throw it out the window. There's too much hate and bitterness and pornography and all the other vices that we could ever want at our fingertips on the internet. We just gotta get rid of that and we'll be pure. got to stop listening to the bad music and watching them bad movies and those bad shows. And the thing is, is we could, we could stack on top of each other list after list after list after list after list of thing we ought not to do. But Paul points out that that's not enough because it's, we can't. We can't make that law. We can't fulfill the law. We can't fulfill the list. And so the other option is to just say, stop it. And I actually have a video for you today of a pastor who tried just that, to say, stop it, to the sin that we see all the time. And so please take a minute and watch how effective it is to say, stop it.
On that note, I can assure you that Daniel is indeed not the worst. Just wanted to clarify that. So there's something we gotta, we, we, there's, a, there's, a, there's a point that we have to get in touch with. And that's this thing called purity. And that's understanding that it's intangible. It's intangible by our own grasp. We can't grab it. And it comes from, oh, I shall read it. Ephesians 2, verse 8 through 10, Paul hits the point on the head perfectly. It says, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And it is not of yourself, it is a gift of God. Not by works so that a man can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. There's a story that I love that, that kind of grasps this idea of purity perfectly. There once was a man, and he was a commander. He was a great commander. He was so, he, he, was, he, he, was, he was brave. He was a conqueror. His home was filled with servants from nations that he had conquered. He was highly regarded even by his own masters. The Lord had given him victory after victory after victory, and he was a valiant soldier. But, a big, big but, he was tainted, untouchable. With him in his battle, in his commander, though he had prestige and everything you could want, he had something that stained him. And though, though many admired him and desired to have the victories that he had, no one wanted to be him. He had leprosy. And his, and his name was Naaman. And one day, Naaman had raided he had, raided a, he had raided a nation and he had taken captives. And with his captives, there was a young girl who came with him to his home. And the young girl told the mistress of the home, she says, why doesn't the master go to someone I know, a prophet in Samaria, so that he could have himself cured of leprosy? And Naaman, hearing this, was excited for those of us who don't know, leprosy is a, is a really terrible disease. It's really hard to contract, but when it does, it attacks you on your skin and on your fingers. Your nerves thicken and lose sensation. You get blemishes and scars all across your flesh. Nobody wants it because it's horrifying and it's scary, so they don't touch you. And so at times, they would injure their fingers that they could not feel, and they would fall off. And so it wasn't unlikely to have somebody whose limbs and fingers and, and even their nose maimed and discarded. And so upon hearing this, Naaman was excited. He wanted to go immediately. And so he beseeched his master, and he said, Master, may I go to potentially have my leprosy cured? And the king of Aram said, I will send you a letter to the king of Israel. And so Naaman took the letter. And he went to the king of Israel, and he took talents of silver and thousands of shekels of gold and ten sets of clothing. And he went to the king of Israel, 
And the letter said, with this letter, I am sending my servant Naaman to you so that you may cure him of his leprosy. And the king was infuriated. He says, I can't cure this guy's leprosy. Are you trying to pick a fight with me? And he tore his clothes in anger at Naaman's request. I am but a man. I cannot heal you. But Elisha had heard about what had happened. He had heard about the king's fury and how the king had rend his clothes. And he said, send the man to me. And Naaman heard the message and he went to Elisha. And he, had and he had taken his chariots and he had stopped at the door of Elisha's house. And he waited and waited until finally the door opened. But the man who came out to greet Naaman from Elisha's house wasn't Elisha. It was his servant. And the servant passed on a message. And he told Naaman, go wash yourself. Wash yourself seven times in the Jordan. And your flesh will be restored and you will be cleansed. But Naaman got angry. He's like, what? You want me to go wash myself in a filthy river? He said, I thought, I thought surely that, the, that this man of God, that this prophet Elisha would come out and greet me personally. But here he sends his servant to greet me. See, I wanted Elisha to come out and I wanted him to wave his hand and call down healing from heaven and heal me on the spot. But no, he wants me to go clean myself in a river as if I were some commoner. And he left. But his servant asked him. He said, my father... If the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more than when he tells you to just wash and be cleaned, should you just do it? And Naaman relented. He went to the river. He took off his clothes and he entered it. The water was filthy and murky, almost like chocolate milk that was like watered down so murky you couldn't see through it. Twigs, grime was floating on the top. But he did. He went in and he dipped himself entirely in the water and came up with each count, one, two, until he got to seven. And when he came out the seventh time, he found out his flesh was clean. He had been cured. He had been purified from his leprosy. And with all of his excitement, he rode back to Elisha's house with all the gifts and he tried to lay them at the prophet's feet. And the prophet answered, as surely as the Lord lives whom I serve, I will not accept a thing. And even though Naaman urged him, he refused. There's, a, there's so much... There's so much that relates to this when it comes to our walks with God. Because when we come to God and we ask him for the things that we desire, because truly we yearn, we're here because we want something. 
We see the power that God has to change lives. We see the power he has to heal relationships, to heal our families, to help us, to help us change in a way that's unimaginable. But somehow, when we hear what he wants from us, we're taken back. But like Naaman, sometimes we concede and we follow through and we get to see amazing change in our lives. We get to see purity in a way that was unimaginable. And I think we get to learn one other thing from this. Because we get to learn the purity isn't something we can achieve on our own. We can't work for it. We can't strive for it. Because guess what? Think about this. Think about trying to earn God's love. And just how ridiculous that sounds. First of all, let's put it in context. Let's think of a small child. What if a small child woke up in the morning to mom and dad at the bedside and they said, honey, sweetie, dear, got to start earning mommy and daddy's love. Got to start cleaning up all those toys on time, giving yourselves bath, making your own sandwiches to take to school. Got to clean the cars, wash the toilets, and then mommy and daddy will love you. How sad would that be? Because not only was that not perfect love, by the time you got done toiling on your knees, working to earn that love, would it even be the love that you would want to have? Love that isn't given freely or given because they care for you. And truthfully, Jesus came to us when we weren't pure, before we could even try to attempt to earn his love. He came and Jesus gave himself on the cross to die for us and give us a free gift that we could take with us. A gift that we didn't take part in earning, nor that we could have ever earned. And we are given a charge to be righteous like he is righteous. A charge that we could never hope to fulfill. Because guess what? It's Jesus' work in us that changes us and not our own. And so we have this confusing, almost conflict. Jesus, we have orders to do what you tell us to do, to be righteous, to follow you. But it somehow isn't going to make us pure? Then what, what, what part do we play in becoming pure, in seeking this purity? And I think the part we play is similar to Naaman's part that he played. Jesus told us he would, he would purify us. And then he would bring us with him to heaven. And we have two ob ob obligations. Have faith that his promise is true. And obey. Have faith and obey. That Jesus will complete his work in us. That he will purify us and he will work in us and he will change us to be the people of God that we would only ever hope to be without him. And in the end, we are blessed with something. We are blessed with something when Jesus' work is eventually completed in us. We will see him. And I have a hard, I have a hard time with this part 
Because, not, not because of the scripture itself, but because I know that, that I struggle with words. I struggle with the fact that I can't take human words, words like beauty, words like, like serene peace, words like glory. All of these amazing, beautiful words cannot describe what it'll be like to see Jesus, to see heaven, to see his work in us complete. Every word I know fails to describe the beauty that is our Jesus. But know that it'll be beautiful and it'll be better than anything you could have ever imagined. And one day, through obedience and faith, we can hear, well done, good and faithful servant, as we get to see God. Let's bow our heads and pray. Lord Jesus, we are thankful. We're thankful for your work in us, Lord Jesus, the work that ever, as long as we are on this earth, you will continue it. And Lord Jesus, give us the strength to be obedient. Give us the strength to be faithful to what you call us to do, Lord Jesus, knowing that you will change us along the way. You will work in us along the way. You will bless us along the way. It's so easy to get caught up with the stresses of this life, our own mistakes, our own shortcomings. Lord God, but the more we look at ourselves and our shortcomings, the less we get to focus on your beauty and your glory and how capable you are. Help us realize this, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray, amen.